But do you realize the immeasurable amount of choices we have all made this morning? You think about that? Both you and I have made a myriad of choices today and actually keep making them every minute. Okay? I made the choice this morning, for example, to get out of bed. Thank goodness, right? I got out of bed at a certain time. Now, if you're like me, it's may, it may be taking you a while to get over or recover from the time change last weekend, right? So maybe this morning you chose to hit that snooze button a few times. So, I know this whole week has been a struggle. Kevin Young jokes that daylight savings time is like governments in the Western world got together and said, let's try to ruin at least one week a year. <laughs> But all of us here, as we got out of bed, we made the choice that we would be going to church this morning, right? We're here. Okay. Once I got up, I made the decision to go into the washroom and to brush my teeth, to trim my beard, to take a shower. And trust me, you should all be very thankful that I chose to do that this morning. <laughs> After that, I went and chose what clothes I'd wear to church. And then I chose what I want to eat for breakfast, which was cereal, as always. <laughs> Then we got in the car, I, I chose a route to take to get here, and even once we're here, made a variety of choices, who to talk to, where to sit, what to do. And there are even, if you think about it, a bunch of very involuntary choices that we make all the time. Okay? Where to walk, where, what to say to certain people, what to, um, where to, <laughs> where to, when to breathe or when to blink, when to swallow when to itch or to yawn. I just made all of you want to itch and yawn, right? (laughs) My point is this, that we make hundreds or even thousands of choices every day of our lives. This is the experience of being human. We choose certain courses for our lives to take. And then we come to the Bible. And what we read in the Bible, we, we learn that God is in control of everything. That he is guiding history to a specific end that only he fully knows. He is sovereignly reigning over all the earth, and he knows, and every one of our lives, he's reigning over them. He has predestined, he's guided, and he's influenced the world throughout all time. That's what we read in the Bible. And I think that we're left partially comforted by these words, and partially worried, right? We think, oh, I'm glad that God is in control. I really am. But does that mean that I'm not? I'm glad that God is in control, but does that mean I'm not? Am I even in, am I not even in control of my own life? What about all the choices that I'm making? Am I in control of these? We can certainly be left confused. How does human choice fit together with God's sovereignty? How do they go together? Can they go together? Are we merely controlled robots walking around the earth? Or do we have what's called a free will? Does God give us any control over our own lives? And if God is truly sovereign and in control of everything, are we actually responsible for what we do, for our choices. We're going to consider this 
uh, what seems to be a paradox between God's sovereignty and our responsibility today. But we're going to especially hone in on one type of choice, which is what I would call the most important choice that we ever make. And that is the choice of salvation, of whether to follow Jesus with our lives or to reject him. It sure seems as though God gives us a choice to be saved or not, doesn't it? Seems that way. And yet the Bible speaks of believers being chosen by God. Theologically speaking, it says that we have been predestined and elected by him. So how does that work? Did I choose God or did he choose me? How does God's predestination and election work with our apparent choices to follow him? That's going to be our main question today. How does God's choice to save us work with our choices to follow? This maybe is a familiar theological topic for debate for some of you. Others may be surprised or even shocked by what the Bible says about this issue. For some of you, this is a major issue in your mind that you just can't wrap your minds around. The concepts of predestination or election may even be agitating or uncomfortable for you to think about. For others, this has never concerned you. It's never bothered you, and maybe it never will. That's okay. Okay, Don't let today's message bother you if God has given you peace about this. Okay, Today's going to be a bit deeper of a message than most, perhaps more like a Bible college class. So I hope that... Uh, You'll be able to follow along. I pray that you will and not be bored to tears because this is an important question for us to consider and to think about because it's in God's word. As with every week of this series, we will be going straight to his word to see what answers he has for us. But before we turn and seek out God's answers, I want to ask him for help today. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, come once again, to your word, looking for answers to what it can be a confounding and confusing topic for us. I pray that you would give us wisdom to understand, to see what your word has to say. Please guide our hearts and our minds as we look into your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where we have to begin today is with an examination of what's called the sovereignty of God. We're going to address the idea of God choosing some people and not others a bit later, okay? We're going to get to that. But first, we have to ask, is God's sovereignty true? Is it real? Is it true that God is completely in control? And does this mean that we as humans aren't actually free in our decision-making? Well, what we're going to see from Scripture is that God's sovereignty is undeniably true. So how does this fit together with man's free will. The truth is, we don't have all the answers, okay? If you're coming for all the answers this morning, I'm sorry, you'll be disappointed. We don't have all of them, but we do know some things. And here's how I would sum up this really important point. First thing in your notes, that God's complete sovereignty is compatible with man's free responsibility. Okay? God is completely sovereign, and man does have a level of freedom, and these two things are compatible. 
God's complete sovereignty is compatible with man's free responsibility. I'm going to give you a total crash course on the sovereignty of God, okay? Five quick points. They're not going to be on the slides, but you can listen. If you want to take notes, you can. First thing, by God's very nature, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all-loving. Okay, By his very nature, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all-loving. Psalm 115, 2-3 says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Okay? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, it's on page 512 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to be reading a fair amount of verses here. This is a, a very familiar psalm to many of us. Psalm 139 I'm going to see lots in these verses, starting at the beginning in verse 1. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they would be more than the sand. If I I awake and I am still with you. We'll stop there for today. But we see all kinds of things in these verses about God's sovereignty. We see in these verses that God is very personal in his sovereignty, that he cares for people. And while he cares for people, he knows everything about us. Did you see that? He knows everything that we're about to say even before we say it. He knows our thoughts. He knows our comings and our goings. There is nowhere we can go where God isn't already there. And he cares about our lives because it says he created us. He wonderfully made us. This all-powerful God is the creator and the ruler of all the earth. That's the second thing about God's sovereignty. The all-powerful God is the creator and the ruler of of the earth. Turn back a few pages to the verses that we read this morning, Psalm 33. Psalm 33 starting in verse 6. 
Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So, again, lots of stuff. As the creator and ruler, God can control everything he wants to control. He controls the natural elements of the earth, the water and land, the air and weather. He controls all the plants and creatures on earth, from bacteria to mammals. He is ultimately in control of all nations and all their rulers and all their politics all at the same time. That's God's sovereignty. Third thing. As the loving creator, God intimately cares about the details of life. As the loving creator, God intimately cares about the details of life. This is why Psalm 139 talks about God knowing even intricate details about us. He knows our words, he knows our thoughts, he knows everything about us. Matthew 10.30 says, Even the hairs of our heads are all numbered by God. Proverbs 20 24 says that God determines our steps, where we walk and where we go. It says, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand God's way? Fourth thing. God has a definite plan for all of history, including our lives. God has a definite plan for all of history, including our lives. Psalm 139 again said, in your book were written... Every one of the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So before we were born, God had planned all our days. It's pretty astounding to think about. Turn with me to the New Testament this time, over to Acts 17. Acts 17, it's on page 926 in your pew Bibles. Acts 17... The Apostle Paul was preaching, and he said this. Acts 17, starting in verse 24. says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So, God created man on earth and set the times of life, the places they live, everything about history. And he has guided history. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek 
God. He has guided history towards one specific purpose, for man to seek God. Really, you could sum it up as God's glory displayed in man's redemption. He's seeking man to be reconciled to himself. We most clearly see his plan today through Jesus, who Acts 2.23 says was delivered up to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He planned it to happen. Fifth thing. Nothing can stop, thwart, hinder, or defeat the purposes of God. It's very important. Get that? Nothing can stop, thwart, hinder, or defeat the purposes of God. No one, no creature, person, or spirit, and nothing can stop God's plan from coming about. And one of my favorite passages from the book of Daniel which we studied a little while ago. The great Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, was humbled and he came to this conclusion. He said, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can stay his hand. Okay? So, biblically, I think you'll agree, there is no question that according to the Bible, God is sovereign and in control. Burke Parsons says this, that if God is not sovereign over all, he's not sovereign at all. He's sovereign over the big things, little things, and all the in-between things. And so he asks, what about our freedom? In light of who God is and how incredibly sovereign he is, what about our freedom? Can we truly be free under such sovereignty? The answer is yes. Here's what I want you to notice from Scripture regarding our wills this time. Okay, First, we looked at God's sovereignty. Now we're going to look at our wills. Okay, Three things. First, that God created man with the freedom of choice. He created man with the freedom of choice. This can be seen especially in the Garden of Eden with the first humans, where God placed them in the Garden of Eden and placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. And God said, you are free to eat from any tree except that one, that singular tree. You're not supposed to eat for. See, God gave man a choice. And he wanted man to choose to obey and love and worship him. If you took away the choice, that love and worship would not be genuine. Love that is chosen is much greater than love that is forced. Now, you all know how that story ended. Unfortunately, man chose to disobey. Man chose to to sin. And that has hindered our freedom ever since. Okay, here's the second thing. Man's freedom of choice is severely finite and now is severely fallen. Okay? Mankind's freedom of choice is severely finite and severely fallen. We like to think 
we have infinite freedom of choice and free will in our lives. I like to think that. The fact of the matter is we don't. We are finite beings. We cannot do anything that our hearts desire. Right? We can't fly. We can't create weather systems. We can't run as fast as a car. We can't teleport anywhere we want on earth. There's all kinds of things that as finite beings we cannot do. So we don't have infinite choice. We are limited, and there's lots of things that are entirely out of our control. But we're not only finite, we're also fallen sinfully, like we just saw from Eden. And our freedom has been overwhelmingly corrupted. We've become, as Romans 6 says, calls us slaves of sin. We naturally now desire what is selfish, harmful, and sinful against God. Do we still have freedom of choice in this? At some level, yes. At some level, yes. But it's not even close to what we feel, hope, or want. And I believe this is the case because like Adam and Eve, we want to be God. Randy Alcorn says this, that sinners do not have the freedom, of, freedom to choose in exactly the same way as Adam and Eve did. Freedom still exists, but our fallenness greatly limits our capacity to obey God. This is going to get a bit, a bit deep for a minute. So those of you who ask this question, you better follow along. Everyone else is free. <laughs> no, I hope you're able to follow this. Okay, I'm going to talk about a little bit deeper this free will, because this doesn't satisfy everyone here. We often understand our free will to mean that we have the capacity to choose a course of action from among various alternatives. Okay? We believe we have the capacity to choose a course of actions from among various alternatives. So this definition, as an example, would say that I had the free will to choose to eat cereal or eggs this morning. Okay? It would say, I have a choice between two different various alternatives, simply because they're alternative choices that I could choose. Alvin Plantinga has defined this type of free will as the freedom of humans to make choices that are not determined by prior causes or by divine intervention. Okay? So we think of this libertarian free will. However, given what we just read about God's sovereignty, we don't have that type of free will. We can't have that type of free will. God is working in our lives. There are prior causes that lead us to make decisions in our life. And most importantly, I think we have desires. We have wants. And we seek to fill those wants. Our free will is more of what Millard Erickson calls a freedom of inclination. A freedom of inclination. This kind of free will means that we are not constrained or coerced in our choices, but that we act freely according to whatever our strongest inclination is. Okay? In other words, we're not free if we have a choice between two options. We're free if we can freely choose to do what we most want to do. Get that? We are free if we can freely choose to do what we most want to do. 
This may be harder to comprehend. I know it is. It's harder to grasp. But if you can grasp it, it makes way more sense out of the world around us. So take my example about breakfast this morning, okay? I did have the choice to choose between cereal or eggs. However, I wanted to eat cereal more than I wanted to eat eggs. Thus, my desires determined that I chose to eat cereal. I would never say this. I would never come to the breakfast table this morning and say, I want cereal. I can have cereal. This is an option. There is cereal in the house. There's nothing that makes me want eggs more than cereal. I'm not on a diet or anything like that. So, I choose eggs. Get that? That would never happen. Now, the question becomes, if God gave me the desire for cereal, did I have a choice? Of course I did. I could have had eggs if I wanted. But I would never choose against my desires. I would, or I could, but I wouldn't. That makes sense? You Put it this way. You have never been coerced by God into doing anything you didn't want to do. Okay? You've never been coerced by God into doing anything you didn't want to do. Millard Erickson says, I am free to choose among various options, but my choice will be influenced by who I am. My freedom must be understood as my ability to choose among options in light of who I am. And who I am is a result of God's decision and activity. Wayne Grudem also says this, Our choices are voluntary because they are what we want to do and what we decide to do. And in that sense, they are free. The mistaken assumption is that a choice must be absolutely free. That is, not in any way caused by God in order for it to be a genuine human choice. That's really key to understand. Okay. So giving you two things. Here's the final thing about our freedom. So first of all, we were created free. Lost lots of our freedom in the fall. Thirdly, we are still justly held responsible for our real choices. Okay. We are still justly held responsible for our real choices. In Scripture, God commands us to love to serve, to worship, to give, to forgive, and many other things. Implied in a command is an option for us to choose to obey or to disobey. And this is key. The perfectly just God always holds us responsible for sin. He always holds us responsible. In light of God's plan, we make real choices for which we are held responsible. Wayne Grudem again says, Clearly we must insist that we have the power of willing choice and that our choices have real results in the universe. Otherwise, we will fall into the error of fatalism or determinism and thus conclude that our choices do not matter or that we cannot really make willing choices. So, in order to be faithful to Scripture, we have to agree on these two things. God is sovereign. He is in control. And 
we are held responsible for our real choices. It is a both-and situation, not an either-or. So, how in the world do these things come together? How do they work together? The short answer is, we're not entirely sure. We have our theories, but our minds are finite. God's sovereign action, this is clear, God's sovereign action does not cancel out humans' free responsibility. In whatever way God works it out, however he does it, God's sovereignty and human freedom are compatible. That's the best word I could use to describe it. They are compatible. I could point you to hundreds of examples in Scripture of how this works out. Here's one for you. Turn back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 45. Genesis 45, page 39 in your pew Bible. The young adults last weekend studied the story of Joseph on our retreat, and it is a rich story with so much that is applicable to our lives today. I encourage you to read it sometime. If you don't know the story, Joseph was one of 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob. Because of jealousy, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, God helped him overcome things like slavery and imprisonment, huge obstacles. Joseph eventually, through God's help, became the second-in-command ruler in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh put him in charge of all kinds of things. Most notably, he put him in charge of distributing food during a huge famine that struck the earth. Now, this famine stretched all the way to Joseph's home country of Canaan and where Joseph's family lived. And one day, who should show up on Joseph's front door but his brothers looking for food? They're looking to buy food, and Joseph was in charge. They didn't know this was Joseph that was put in charge of the food. And so we come to Genesis 45. And Genesis 45, verse 4, says this. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Hey, stop right there. Who sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt? Based on that verse, who sold him into slavery? His brothers, right? Yeah, okay. So his brothers sold him into slavery. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Okay, wait, wait. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? God. According to that verse... Okay, he says this again in verse 7. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Didn't he just say that his brothers sold him into slavery? He did. Now, but and here, they did sell him to slavery. That's a fact. They sold him to slavery. But here he says, verse 8, It was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, Joseph wasn't denying that his brothers made real choices and did real actions. He was not denying that. What he was saying is that God's purposes and actions were greater. 
On the day of judgment, here's a good way to look at it. On the day of judgment, will Joseph's brothers be able to stand before God and point to verse 8 and say, God, we didn't do that. You did. (laughs) No. (laughs) They're not going to be able to stand before God and say that because they did real actions. They made real choices. The point is this. God's greater purposes are often carried out by human actions. Now, there are two wills in every action. Ours and God's. But God's is greater and more important in every sense. In Joseph's famous statement in a few chapters later in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Notice, both wills, both intents were successful. The brothers meant evil, and they did evil. God meant good, and did good. They're both successful. One other quick example. Just so you know, Joseph's life isn't an exception to the norm. This is how God has worked throughout history and how he works in your life. Okay, Acts 2. Acts 2, Peter said, uh, you don't need to turn there. Peter's preaching and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, did Jesus die because God planned it to happen or because men chose to kill him? Yes! Somebody got it down. (laughs) Both wills are compatible and concurrent within the plan of God. We may not fully understand how they go together, but they do. It's a paradox, but it's true. We have to remain humble and realize that in light of this, we have very limited perspectives. God doesn't. He knows it all. Matt Papa says this, Man is responsible. God is sovereign. Believe both. And you can wake up in the morning with purpose and go to bed at night with peace. Great resource. If you want to look more into this, we've got to move on. But I encourage you, if you're really interested in this debate about free will and sovereignty, this book, If God is Good by Randy Alcorn, we studied this a while back in Sunday school together. We have several copies in the library if you'd like to check it out. But what this is, he takes several chapters in a row and goes really into depth on this issue. And so if you have uh, time or if you really want to look into this more, I'd encourage you to check that out. To fully address our question for today, though, we have to get more specific. This is the broad answer. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. We have to get more specific and look at God's decision to predestine or elect believers for salvation. How does God's choice to save work with man's choice to follow? What comes first? Is one more important than the other? Do we actually have a choice in the matter? And maybe, more than anything, is it fair that God chooses some and not others? Is that fair? Here's the main point I will show you from Scripture, is this. In terms of our salvation, God graciously elects believers through predestination. God mercifully predestines and elects some to be saved forever in heaven. In terms of our salvation and our destiny, God graciously elects believers through predestination. Predestination, big word, literally means 
preset destiny or pre-planned destination. Okay, that's what predestination means. So, if God predestines people, it means that he sets a destiny for them in advance. And in some way, God predestines everyone. However, Scripture only specifically refers to predestining people for heaven. That's all that Scripture talks about, predestining people for heaven. Election, second word, is usually more specific than predestination. It refers to a choice that God makes. A choice. One definition says it is an act of God by which he chooses some people for salvation in Christ. So election speaks of God choosing specific people to be saved by Jesus only because of his grace. Now, first question, are these concepts biblical? Do we find them in the Bible? Absolutely. Here's the first one. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 976. Ephesians 1 is a beautiful passage that describes our blessings in Christ. And we're going to read this starting in verse 3 in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to make the pra- to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Great passage. Beautiful passage. I want you to notice a couple things in particular, though, for today. Verse 4. Verse 4, he said, Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is speaking about election. That God chose us. And here's predestination. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, let me ask you this. According to these verses, are election and predestination good or bad things? No brainer. They are gloriously good things. 
They are some of the richest blessings that God has given us. The very first blessing that God praises God for is election. The second one is predestination. They're gloriously good things. Notice that in verse 5, it said that we were predestined to be adopted. If you are adopted into a family, did you originally belong to that family? No. But once you're adopted, you are just as much a family member as everyone else. You become part of the family. And Paul says that through predestination, we have been adopted into God's family. It's a good thing. Let me be clear about this. Without God electing us or predestining us, salvation would never happen. Okay? It would never happen. It is a good thing that we have been elected and predestined. Let's turn to another passage quickly. Romans 8, a few pages back, page 944, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to see a lot of the same stuff. Romans 8, verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also, here's our word, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What this passage makes clear is that there are select people whom God has greatly blessed. That some people have been called, predestined, justified, and one day will be glorified. And these people make up the group of people that Scripture often calls the elect. Skip, look down at verse 33, what he says. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, another question. When did all this happen? When did God elect and predestine people? What did Ephesians say? Ephesians 1 said that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Which means this, and this is crazy to think about. We were part of God's definite plan from eternity past. Now let me ask you this. Who did the choosing? Who did the electing? God did. I doubt any of you would want to stand up today and claim that, Pastor Matt, I was alive before the world started. Right? Can't claim that. Did you see in these verses any human actions that we just read? There were a few, but not much. Overwhelmingly, it was God's actions. Ephesians 1 does talk about us hoping and believing in him in verse 12. But this happens long after God chose us to be saved. We have to admit that the first action in our salvation is an act that we didn't make. It was all God's move and God's choice, and really it was God's grace and God's love might be bothered by this, though. And you think, this doesn't seem to fit with what I've experienced in life, though. I feel 
like I found God and that I chose God. That's a legitimate feeling that we have, right? I think our experience is a lot like a story that Ravi Zacharias tells about a little girl. This little One day this little girl got hopelessly lost in a dark and dense forest. And she started getting panicky and anxious and started screaming out for her parents, and, and, but to no avail. She was lost. And eventually she just got tired, night was coming, and she fell asleep in the woods. Meanwhile, her father was also searching for her for hours, all through the night. And when he finally found her the next morning, he, she was still asleep, lying there on a little rock. Okay? And as he ran up to her, elated, he called out her name, and the girl's eyes popped open, and, and she immediately squealed, Daddy, I found you! I think that's our experience. See, we were more than just asleep when God found us. We were dead in our sins. Destined to die. And without Him choosing us first, we would never choose Him. We'll see more of this again shortly. You might be wondering, though, is this fair? Is this fair? This is probably the biggest question we have. Is it fair for God to choose some people and not others? Doesn't God say that he loves the whole world and that he desires everyone to be saved? Yes, he does. But in giving us freedom, he gives us permission to not be saved. And since the beginning... We humans have been willingly and enthusiastically rejecting God. The answer to whether or not this is fair is that no, it is not fair. It is not fair that I get selected at all. That's what's unfair. What is entirely fair is that those who reject God will live without Him. God's not obligated to us in any way. I'm so thankful that even the fact, even though I rebelled against my Creator, that He chose me. It's grace. Election, this is key, election is not an act of unfair exclusion. It's an act of gracious inclusion. We know that God could save all if he wanted to, but he also could not save anyone. That's his right. That doesn't stop us from asking, though, if God could save all, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he save everyone? Bruce Ware, a theologian, answers this pretty humbly, I think. He says this, Why didn't God just distribute the favor to everybody? I think the answer must be, He knows what perhaps we can only struggle to try to comprehend. He knows that there are purposes yet to be fulfilled, which can only be fulfilled when He has completed all of history in such a way that there is a heaven and a hell. There is both the place of the redeemed and the place of those who receive their just condemnation. 
And this will display in a way that could not happen otherwise the fullness of the glory of God and the purposes that he has with this created order. Got to have humility here. God knows better than we do. Whatever we feel, we can trust that his mercy and justice will be appropriately shown in the end. can trust that. So does this all mean that we actually have nothing to do with our salvation? Are humans just passive participants and God does everything arbitrarily? No, that's not the conclusion that we see in the Bible. That's not what we see in God's Word. And this is just another amazing evidence of God's grace. Because if God didn't act first, we wouldn't ever respond to Him. However, God wants us to respond. He wants us to respond. He wants to give us the privilege to respond to Him. So in terms of our salvation, God graciously elects believers through predestination, and God enables us to respond freely with repentance and faith. God elects believers and then enables us to respond freely with repentance and faith. A couple weeks ago, when we talked about God's wrath, I mentioned that we end up having lots of questions about God when we underestimate our sin. When we underestimate how bad our sin is. I think this is the same case here. We give ourselves way too much credit. This is crucial to grasp. We are so inherently and deliberately sinful. We are depraved to the core of who we are. Like I just said, if it were up to us, we would never choose God or to follow Him. That's how corrupted our desires are. We don't want God. We want to be God. Our sinful desires trump our desires for God every time. Going back to our free will, we could choose God, but we would never choose God. We never choose Him. We are hopelessly lost, blinded to the truth, indifferent. Our hearts are hard. The Bible speaks of our hearts and our eyes needing to be opened up to God. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And yet, even though God would be just in condemning the entire human race. He elects a remnant of his creations. Nothing about the elect makes them better people than the non-elect. The only difference is God's incredible grace. And those he chooses, he graciously enables to respond. He restores some of the freedom of choice that we lost so that we can choose Him. He gives us new desires that desire Him above our other desires. Probably the clearest place we see this is in John 6.44 where Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me 
draws him. The first action is God. By drawing us to himself, God enables us to respond to him. In Scripture, we are constantly invited to repent, believe, receive, accept, and to come to Jesus. So while we are passive in our election and our predestination and our enabling, we are not passive in every aspect of our salvation. God wants us to respond to him. And we must repent of our sins. We must believe in Jesus as our Savior. If you've never repented or believed before, I believe that Jesus is calling you today. He's calling you to come to him. He's calling you to open your eyes to the truth that we all deserve death. He's he's calling you to see that he is offering grace freely to you, ready to be received. He's calling you to see the love that he has for you, love which drove him to die for you. He's calling you to see his saving power displayed in the empty grave. He's calling you to turn from your sins and to turn to him. Now, some of you will refuse. Some of you will refuse to hear. Some of you will refuse to believe. We know that if you do respond freely to God's grace, you show yourself to have been elected by God. That he chose you. I don't know who the elect are. Only God does. And so I preach this to all of you. Come to Jesus today. Run to him. Let him save you from your sins forever. You can't be God. You won't ever be. But he is. Come to Jesus. And once... We've responded. If we truly mean it, if we truly believe it, our lives will be transformed. And you never have to worry about whether or not you're part of the elect. You don't have to worry about that. God knows, and you can have confidence and trust in Him. As Romans 8 promises, anyone He calls, He has predestined, He has justified, and He will glorify. You can't be lost. So what, what does all this mean for us? What, is this, what does the fact that God predestined us and elected us mean for us today? Three quick things. First of all, like I just said, we should have confidence in God's plan, which will be fulfilled. The elect will come to faith and be saved. We don't have to worry about that. If you have believed in Jesus and repented of your sins, rest Secure in his promise. In scripture, election, every time it's brought up, election is always meant as a comfort, not a concern. I'd be happy to speak with you more if you have still have questions on this, but more than anything, I would urge you to trust. To trust God. There's a gospel song by Babby Mason that says this. You might know it. It says, God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, 
when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Trust his heart. Number two, we are still called to evangelism and missions. We need to obey. Only God knows who the elect are, so we should tell everyone. After all, God wants to use us as the means to reach people. It's a privilege. And he wants to use us in this way. Because of election, we should be confident, not complacent. And at the end of the day, we can take heart that the results don't depend on us. Third thing. This is the biggest, I think. We should praise God for his amazing grace displayed in our lives. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. Ephesians 1, what we read earlier, said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's how I want to leave you today. That Because the, the doctrine of election, or predestination, the doctrine of election shouldn't have to be endured. It should be embraced and enjoyed. It should be appreciated and cherished. More than anything, it should compel us to worship and awe. If you have believed, exult in this fact that you got chosen by the God of the universe. One of my former pastors spoke on election once in and shared a moving story that I think displays the beauty and the glory of God choosing us. That even when we didn't choose him, he chose us. In his book, Letters to My Children, Daniel Taylor said this. said, I want to tell you the story about a time in grade six in Mr. Jenkins' class. He's ta- this guy, the author, is talking to his kids, trying to give them some good advice for life. And he says... One of the things you were expected to do in grade school was to learn to dance. And every time we went to work on our square dancing, the boys would all line up at the door of our classroom. Then one at a time, each boy would pick a girl to be his partner. The girls all sat at their desks. And as they were chosen, they left their desk and joined the snot-nosed kid who had honored him with his favor. Believe me, The boys did not like doing this. But think about those girls. Think about waiting to get picked. Think about worrying that you'd get picked by someone you couldn't stand. Think about worrying that you wouldn't get picked at all. Think if you were Mary. Mary was a girl who sat up near the front. She wasn't pretty. She wasn't real smart. And Mary certainly wasn't athletic. In fact, she had polio or something when she was small, and one of her arms was drawn up and she had a bad leg. Now here's where Miss Owens comes in. Miss Owens was the assistant teacher in Mr. Jenkins' class. She was practicing on us. 
And Miss Owens took me outside one day and said, Dan, next time we have square dancing, I want you to choose Mary. She may as well have told me to fly to Mars. It was an idea so new and so inconceivable that I could barely hold it in my head. Who would pick Mary when there was Linda or Shelley or Doreen? And then Miss Owens did a really rotten thing. She told me that it is what a Christian should do. I immediately knew I was doomed. I was doomed because I knew she was right. It was exactly the kind of thing Jesus would have done. The day came when we were to square dance again, and Mr. Jenkins lined the boys up by the door, and it was worse than you think. If God really loved me, I thought, he would make me last in line. Then picking Mary will cause no stir. I will have done the right thing, and it won't have cost me anything. You can guess where I ended up. Mr. Jenkins made me first in line. The faces of the girls were turned towards me, some smiling. I looked at Mary and saw that she was staring down at her desk. Mr. Jenkins said, Okay, Dan, choose your partner. Then I heard my own voice say, I choose Mary. Never has reluctant virtue been so rewarded. I can still see her face undimmed in my memory. She lifted her head, and on her face, reddened with pleasure and surprise and embarrassment, was the most genuine look of delight that I have ever seen before or since. Linda and Shelley came up to me later and said, Miss Owens made you do it, didn't she? And I said, no. And I wasn't lying. Miss Owens had asked me to do it. She had told me that I should do it. But I had chosen Mary. And I was glad. When we read that story, we have to realize we are Mary. We are Mary. I am Mary. You are Mary. We are all crippled by our sin with bad hearts, bad legs. And God says, I choose Mary. We can't have delusions of grandeur and and think that we're somehow more deserving or more special. We can't boast in ourselves. Our only boast is in God and His grace. We're, We're the ones that are sitting at our desks with our heads down. And God has no reason to choose you. Except that He loves you. Heavenly Father, we exalt in your love today. Love that would look down through the corridors of time and say, I choose you. Undeserving, sinner, depraved. God, help us to view with eyes wide open how amazing your grace is for us. And help us exult in that love and that grace every day of our lives. Thankful to the God who chose us. Pray this in Jesus' name.